You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee and with me today is Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Paul. Hello. I'm on the show again. I've been on the show a lot lately. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be here with you doing this. Yeah, well, you're only like a, like a two-thirds guest today because uh, later in the podcast, uh, we'll be talking to Bowen Ma, who is a uh, BC uh, MLA who was uh, responsible for the committee that dealt with the ride-hailing legislation. So you have to sit through me to get to the point of listening to uh, to Bowen Ma. Well, you could skip ahead. You could skip ahead to probably like 30 minutes into the podcast and uh, and get to Bowen Ma. We have 30 minutes of stuff to talk about this week? We do. Okay. You seem skeptical. Every well, week you think, we can't possibly fill a podcast with interesting driving law-related material. I just want to make sure it's interesting. So I want it to be fast-moving. So what are we, we going to talk about, Kyla? Well, this week, the first thing I think we should talk about is the... Idaho stop. I know you mentioned this earlier today. I'd never heard of it, but I mean, if you're going to give it a name, that's as good a name as any. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the car context, you've probably heard of the California rolling stop. Uh, I know California lane change. I just think of, uh, I think you're referring to people basically running stop signs. Yes, but the Idaho stop specifically refers to cyclists running stop signs. And you're thinking to yourself, how many cyclists are there in Idaho? Like, wouldn't this come from some place where there's like a yeah, it, so it really is... large cyclist community. Maybe there is an Idaho. I don't know. You would think the really large cyclist community would be somewhere where the weather's cycling weather year round or something. Yeah, but no, in Idaho, they changed the law. This was quite some time ago to allow cyclists to run stop signs as long as they slowed down and made sure the coast was clear first. Oh, so they actually changed the law. Okay, yeah. I thought this was something that they were considering doing. No, no, no. They've they've done it in Idaho. Um, the Senate in uh, Oregon has just passed a bill to allow it. Um, Utah is looking at it. So it's catching on. So if you're riding your bike, mm-hmm. you don't have to stop at a stop sign. That's but correct. You, you must yield? You must. Or- yeah, you have to stop if there's traffic and you don't have the right of way. Um, and well, you don't have the right of way if there's a stop sign, I would assume. I would assume it acts like a yield sign for a... Am I right? Or? Well, if you and a vehicle are approaching a four-way stop at the same time, the, the, vehicle, the bike can go through and the, the vehicle can't. Okay, but if, the, if you're driving a car and there's a bike coming, the bike has a stop sign. The bike... And you have yeah, no stop sign. The, the bike is only allowed to run the stop sign if it's safe. Okay, all right. So it's, they would be the one at fault, I assume, if... Yes. They ran the stop sign and it wasn't safe. Yes. Okay. So you're still required to slow down. You can't just blow through the stop sign, but there is uh, an exception for bicycles. Well, as a cyclist and uh, formerly a uh, avid always riding my bike cyclist, I am supportive of this. I think we should consider this. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Hear me out. You can hear cars coming for the most part. So you're on a bike. So long as it's not an electric car. I was going to say, can you hear a Tesla coming? Well, that's the thing. You know, that's um, there's a caveat. You can tell there's a caveat. But when you're on a bike, you can you can generally, so long as you don't have headphones on, you can hear the cars 
I, I mean, I don't feel safe on a bike with headphones, but you can hear the cars coming and you know whether or not there's a car coming and you don't want to lose your power. I mean, the, the, it's an issue of you using your actual pedal power in order to get there. Yes, um, but I disagree with the law and I'm going to tell you why. The reason I think this law sucks is because cyclists already have way too much power on the road. How often do you actually see a cyclist ever come to a complete stop at a stop sign? All you're doing by doing this is normalizing and, and, and justifying the unlawful actions of cyclists. And if you give them this inch, they will take a mile. I disagree completely. Uh, aside from the fact that you are just acknowledging what's already going on and not making cyclists lawbreakers by doing this, um, you are recognizing the fact that being on a bike is different. Uh, being on the bike is you're not producing any pollution. You are using your own power to get where you're going. And it's, you know, hard enough to be out there pedaling, especially if you're pedaling to work or something like that. Um, and, uh, to try and get there without, without being a, you know, sweaty person by the time you get to work. It, it, it's, it's, it's energy. You have to use energy to break. And then you got to use your personal energy to pedal again. If there's nobody there, what's the downfall? I mean, what's the downside? Except not, you potentially being struck by a car at your, you know, when you are at fault. Have you ever seen the dent a cyclist makes when they ride into your car? <laughs> no, 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 no. This happened. Uh, okay. I'm sure. When I was in law school. Make sure they're insured. You know, just make sure this. I think the cyclist should be insured. I think you should be required to have insurance if you're on a bike. Yes. I think you should. I think all bicycles should be uh, licensed. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, parents should not be able to have a child on a bike unless they bought a license for their parents' bike. Oh, absolutely. Same as a fishing license. Because I think people on bicycles have really no concept and have demonstrated, or don't have to demonstrate anyway, just, that they no, have... Just people on bicycles, eh? Hey, you just yeah. gonna... Yeah, I, I paint all bicycle people with the same brush. Ugh, Kyle. I'm very anti-cyclist. You, know, you realize that there's like a complete, like, extreme cyclist community who will come down hard if anybody listens to this podcast. Yeah, I realize there's the extreme cyclist community, but the extreme cyclist community should educate themselves that the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act apply equally to them, only with the ex explicit exceptions set out in the Act. I know, and so my thing is, why not put out the explicit exception for this? It doesn't have to be 15 exceptions. It's just one exception. If you come up to a stop sign and there's no vehicles or anything like that, you know, slow down. Go through at a safe speed, but you don't have to stop your bike and go through. Now, I will tell you, when I was a regular cyclist, especially when I was in university, I'd blow through stop signs, I'd blow through red lights. If it was a, like a pedestrian crossing red light, no problem. The only yeah. thing is I would whistle, just like just like Biff Lohman in the elevator. I would whistle. I don't get that reference. That must from, be a reference from like 1942. It, it, it probably is death of, <laughs> death of a salesman. I don't know what year it was written. <laughs> Willie Loman gives Biff uh, Biff uh, uh, a great deal of grief. Um, you know, tells him that he's a fool because he whistles in the elevator. He's told that he whistled in an elevator when he's going for a job interview. I wouldn't hire somebody who whistled at a job interview. Well, it was in the elevator though. It doesn't matter. But my... if I heard them whistling in the hallway. I'd be like, Paul, don't hire them. They whistled in the hallway. <laughs> Well, you have, you've got your troubles, yeah, I've got mine. I do. But back to the cyclists. No, I, I, I do agree with you that cyclists should be registered. I think that they should have to take at least a basic online education course about 
motor vehicle laws. Um, and I think they should have to pay for some basic insurance being 20, 40, a hundred dollars a year, something, you know, minor like that. But cyclists cause accidents and they don't take any responsibility as a collective. It's always cars are always at fault. Drivers are always at fault. Um, but I see cyclists cutting pedestrians off in crosswalks more than I see cars doing it. Well, I see cyclists riding in crosswalks and riding down, oh. down, uh, uh, sidewalks all the time. You and, uh, can't be a bike and a pedestrian at the same time. If you're under the age of 14 and you're riding on the sidewalk, okay, I get it. You know, you're learning how to ride and you you don't have very good judgment with respect to speeds of vehicles and things like that. Sure, and you're a kid. Yeah. But if you're an adult uh, and you're riding on the sidewalk or riding in the crosswalk, I have no sympathy for you whatsoever. Yeah, the cyclists who pull up to the red light. I think you should be light, ticketed, absolutely. You know, they pull up to the red light and then they turn and they ride in the crosswalk and they ride in the crosswalk to get ahead of the traffic. Or they pull up to the red light and then they wait and there's no other cars coming and they run the red light. See, I'm sympathetic for running the red light. I almost killed a guy on a bicycle who did the crosswalk thing a couple weeks ago. Because hmm. I was the third in a line of cars in a three-lane road. Is that, and is that the a, light turned green, and he was in the crosswalk, but I didn't see him because everybody else. Does that does that explain your anger today about this? Is that is that what this is really about? No, now? this is my deep-seated cyclist-related rage. Huh. Huh. Well, anyway. um, I can say that uh, I'm coming out on uh, on in behalf of, of in favor Idaho. of the the cyclists, and on behalf of the cyclists. And uh, although I don't ride my bike nearly as much as I used to, I still uh, remember pulling up at stop signs and thinking this is ridiculous. And I never did stop at a stop sign unless there was you know traffic coming. Um, and uh, I don't think that was ever unsafe. I didn't run into any cars either. Well, I was almost run off the road various times when I was you know. It had the right of way, but you could say as a car coming up to a stop sign when there's no traffic, you also shouldn't have but to stop. You can't hear. You can't hear when you're in a car, and there can be a pedestrian there, and you can kill somebody, and you're probably not going to kill somebody. Pedestrians when you're have on a been bike. killed by cyclists. Oh, I'm sure there they, was an ICBC uh, case. A while I'm ago. sure there have been, but the probability of 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 morbidity in a cyclist pedestrian crash versus a uh, cyclist vehicle crash is significantly less, and you're weighing risk. And the legislative assembly weighs that risk, and right. I'm and I'm with them. Well, if so. they if they pass the Idaho stop law for bicyclists, you know I'll be like out there on the street going, "This is a cash grab." I don't know how it's a cash grab yet, but it's gonna be. <laughs> I'm gonna be <laughs> protesting the cash grab. This is no cash grab. This is a, like agreeing not to ticket people who are right now committing offenses and don't get tickets anyway. Yeah. Um, hey, VPD, if you're listening, please enforce the cycling laws, please. I don't really care about the helmet law, so long as the kids are wearing helmets. All right, moving on. Speaking of people enforcing the law, I thought that we could spend a little bit of time talking about the stupidest law on the books. That's actually not the stupidest law on the books, but the one that people are most upset about right now, which is the cell phone law. I don't think people are that upset about it. I think most people accept that it's not a good thing to have, uh, you know, people texting while driving and Instagramming while driving and yeah. whatever people do. But what if your phone's dead? Okay. So this is the decision that we got from um, a... Uh, it wasn't us. We didn't argue the case. No. The, the, our courts rendered um, for a person who had a dead cell phone yet had his two earbuds in his ears... At the same time, I don't know why you would have your earbuds in your ears, except maybe to store them. Although, you know, you might have a pocket. 
Um, Where in your vehicle, like the passenger seat. What is the purpose of having them? But ultimately, the um, the uh, what do we call them? JJPs. Yes, Judicial uh, Justice of the Peace. Sitting in uh, Richmond, right next to our office, there wasn't our case. Uh, came to the conclusion that holding the earbuds in your ears was the same as holding your phone. You were holding it in a way that could be used. And you extended and the size of your phone. Now, did it say whether they yeah. were wired earbuds or yeah, wireless? Yeah, they were wired. wired. So it's connected to the phone. And the phone, um, I guess, by the sounds of it, was not uh, in a fixed holder probably, but we've sort of recently sort of resolved that where it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be and the police vpd have said so long as it's on like in a slot or in the dash or in a cup holder that that's okay um so i mean the difficulty we get is yeah you're allowed to have your phone you can have it with you in the car you can have it with you in case you want to call 911 or need to call 91 you can have it with you if it's lawfully mounted although there's limits to how much you're allowed to touch it that doesn't seem to be clear to me yeah one but, touch. Yeah. Um, the answer to all of these questions that people have is always in the regs, but nobody looks up the regs because the Motor Vehicle Act regulations have certain prescriptions but for it's one earbud, electronic it says device. In the regulations or something? There's a second Motor Vehicle Act regulation, the electronic device regulation, um, that says one earbud. Yeah. So he had two in, so he was in violation of the law in that regard. And the, the excuse in the regulations, and then the other part was the holding it in a manner that could be used. So, yeah. So the, the court said that holding it in a manner was holding it in your ears. But from the reaction that I've been seeing from people like on Twitter and uh, the comments on news stories, they're more upset at the notion that you can get a ticket for having a dead phone than the two earbuds holding rule. Well, here's the thing. I, I see people are upset about that. I'm, um, the, uh, uh, fellow, the driver here was not cross-examined by the police officer at the trial. Mm-hmm. He testified his evidence was, uh, not, um, undermined. I mean, I guess he was, it was accepted in the end. Um, and you would be thinking to yourself that the question you would want to ask the person is why would you have them in your ears Yeah, seriously. if it was dead? And then you would disbelieve him that it was a dead cell phone. I mean, it can be a phone that's locked, so it always looks dead. It can be a phone that's, you know, you, how do you prove that your phone's not operating without showing that it's, you know, showing it somehow to the police officer? So there's a question about the evidence here. That I, I'm still not, I yeah. don't think was resolved in a manner that's going to satisfy people. I think that the JJP was probably suspicious that the phone wasn't the dead. The phone wasn't but dead. But it doesn't really but matter that because was he relied that it was. on an earlier traffic court decision where there was a phone that was dead and where the judge was satisfied that the phone was not charged. No and it battery. says in the Motor Vehicle Act a, a manner in which it could be used. It doesn't say that yeah. it's being used or that it's, you know, that it's functional, like that it's that it is operational and could be used. Yeah, it's that's weird, a, though, that functionality is not an element of the offense. Because, I mean, if I have like 400 dead cell phones lying around, as I do, um, as we all do. Oh, yeah, I all, all, my, all my old electronics in a, in a closet in my house. I keep mine to throw at cyclists. <laughs> Stop at the stop sign. <laughs> um, 
no, uh, if, you, if you're like me and you have all your old electronics lying around, like, why can't you drive around with them in your hand? You can drive with a can of pop in your hand and it poses about the same amount of risk. In fact, the pop's probably more risk because you're tempted to drink it. Uh, I think people are tempted to look at their phones. The um, the dead ones? Uh, well, you know, there's some people who tell you that they just like to hold it in their hand. I know. Um, there are a lot of people who are like, I'd really just like to touch it. Yeah. It's, like, okay, uh, you need help for that. Well, I think, you know, we all need help with respect to our phones. But it's I true. dropped my phone um, in water, not the toilet, recently. Uh, thankfully, my iPhone had backed itself up at 5 in the morning, so I replaced my phone. But You're I welcome. Had, yeah, thank you. I took one of Kyle's one of old, old phones because she wants a new one, and I don't care um, whether or not it's new or old or what have you, so long as it functions for me. But in any event, um, so I had a charging uh case for it mm-hmm. and i left it in my car and i you know had it sitting in my car on the um, sort of the the transmit the transmission drive shaft hump between the back seats and um i decided i better quickly move it to the trunk because some police officer would look at, at it there and think that i'm i have a phone because it's the same size as a phone mm-hmm. i mean it's made to hold the phone it's the whole size shape color yep yeah, and uh, you could just have a case with no transmitting, and you know who wants to run to court and have a trial? Look, he gave me a ticket, and here's the thing that I actually had because I dropped my phone in the bathtub. Well, there are people that do that. Um, I was talking to an officer rec- recently, and I've also seen this on the internet. There's a, people who are, I guess, trying to protest cell phone laws by making cookies or baked goods that look like phones and eating them while driving to try and like taunt the police into giving them a ticket don't those people have time don't they have time to do things Th- they do have I mean, time too much I time i mean to I'm, make a baked iphone no, no you know what i'm saying i mean yeah. like don't they don't they have things that they need to do in the world apparently not you know, baking thing cookies that look like a phone i did hear from one officer that in response to that there may have been an obstruction charge forwarded well, to crown that's ridiculous that is stupid the obstruction charge? charge? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You're you're distracting the police from the resources that their, you know, zone they've set up to check for cell phones. And, you know, you can think of some of the common areas. Which so is, what? I mean, that's, that is, that is ridiculous. Interfering the, in the police's lawful execution no, of their duties. No, it's not. It is not. I mean, I suppose I would probably show that if I was stupid enough to have a cookie phone, I would show the police officer the cookie phone. But still, it's not. So that police officer, I want to know, you can tell me the name afterward. And then we go, <laughs> we don't, don't want to say him on the air. No. Um, anyway, her, I, think it's, I, I think it's a little bit silly, the notion that the law captures a cell phone with a dead battery. Um, the law also technically captures other things. Like we heard a story from a police officer who told us about his colleague who issued a cell phone or a distracted driving ticket to a woman using an insulin pump. Yeah. (laughs) It transmits Um, data about your blood sugar levels. So therefore it is an electronic device. You must die or drive, but that was, but you can't, that one was, that one was uh, canceled though. (laughs) As soon as the superior found out about it. Yes. I believe the police officer that told us about that is the one that, Cancelled it. Yes. Yelled. Yelled. Raged out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I guess, as I said on my CTV interview, 
Uh, you were interviewed by CBC. I was inter- I only found out about that. Somebody mentioned that to me today. Oh, Kyla was interviewed on CBC. Mm-hmm. I was interviewed on CTV, and um, I think I did say something wrong. And it always worries me when I say something wrong. Um, Richard Zussman said something wrong in an article that he had the other day. What was that? It was, he had interviewed me about the woman who couldn't blow, and he said, you have the right to ask for a blood test. You do not have the right to ask for a blood test. There is no lawful authority for the police to take your blood unless certain preconditions are met, none of which include you asking for it. So what I told CTV is what I'll tell our uh, many listeners now. Uh, you know, it's a new law, so we're going to see it uh, being tested in all sorts of ways. And uh, it's going to be tested more when we look at the consequences of it. A second offense is... Uh, by the time you're done, is $2,069 or something. I worked out in uh, yep. fines, driver point premium, and on top of that, a four-month driving prohibition, and on top of that, uh, other stuff, like car insurance, according to David Eby. Yeah. So well, he says. Also very interesting about these consequences. I'm glad you mentioned that. Did you look at the most recent provincial court uh, annual report? Are you kidding? Of course not. Okay, well... I might have. have I, I looked... Had I seen it. <laughs> Somebody had tweeted it at me. I, I looked it. at what, the annual what, what report for the what provincial court. Um, they were looking at the different types, like classes or categories of litigation and what's up and what's down. Small claims is down, um, unsurprising because we have the civil, civil resolution, resolution tribunal. tribunal. Criminal is down, unsurprising because we have administrative penalties taking the place of many criminal offenses. And as we now know, no investigation into money laundering. Oops. Um, so criminal but, is down. Yeah. <laughs> if, just, if you're outside of BC, nobody. anybody in BC probably knows. It turns out we've had nobody investigating money laundering in the province oh, no, despite I was, our, I was despite our a, huge, huge money laundering problem. I was talking to a prosecutor from Alberta about a disclosure request, and he says, yeah, I sent it off to the RCMP. They're not getting back to me. I don't know what they're doing. And I said, yeah, they're not investigating money laundering. He thought it was hilarious. Oh. Well, I, was, I was talking to a uh, uh, senior police officer from uh, Richmond, RCMP, like two years ago, and I asked him about... What are you guys doing about money laundering in the casinos, or what? Do you, you know, and he said that um, when the casinos came to Richmond, um, they all presented to Richmond City Hall, and the RCMP also presented. And the RCMP said, "Look, like this is going to be a problem. It's going to present a. It's going to be a lot of work. We're going to need officers dealing with all these different aspects of it." And um, the uh, casinos assured the. Uh, uh, City Hall in Richmond. Um, I have problems, my own problems with Richmond City Hall, but uh, assured Richmond City Hall, no, 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 there'll be no more policing. Like a couple of calls a week, maybe. Yeah, just that, drunk people being yeah, ejected. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the RCMP have told me they could have numerous full time staff working just to deal with the casino with the River Rock. Yeah. Anyway, so because they don't, crime is down. Crime is down because criminal cases yeah. are down. Yep. Yeah. Uh, family cases are uh, basically remaining steady. Uh, also unsurprising. That'll go up with the economy declining. Yes. Um, but one thing that had a significant increase over the year before was traffic and bylaw disputes. And I got to say, when I go to traffic court and I talk to the officers, you know, the officers that are the diehard traffic members, and you're like, oh, how many do you have today? Because it's always hilarious to hear them say like 14 um, and then another 12 in the next session. Um, they, uh, I asked them, you know, it was a speeding cell phone and it's now primarily cell phone disputes that they're dealing with. The was, speeding I, tickets are becoming rare. I was in traffic court the other day and um, I 
spoke to the officer I was dealing with and, uh, or no, the officer I was supposed to deal with was out at a call. This was when he was at the Langara, um, the Langara firebombing thing. Yeah. Um, and, but there was another officer who was there, who you know, and I know who, who issues a lot of cell phone tickets. Nice guy. Um, quite professional. Uh, mm-hmm. and he was speaking to people and there was a lineup of people. I talked to one person just because I was standing there just mm-hmm. to help them. Next thing you know, I had 10 people in line who wanted to talk to me about their cell phone ticket. And I'm like giving summary advice. Oh yeah. You're in a car to go and you're holding your phone. Yeah. I think you're done. Uh, you may want to plead guilty because you run a trial. You're going to lose. Oh, okay. Your phone was in a sitting on the console. Well, talk to him. This decision may have changed it. He <laughs> I mean, those were issued a while ago. But that was a whole lineup of people. They were all there for cell phone tickets. Yeah. That's the that's the concern. But because well, the punishment. Where the punishment is now it's now more expensive to get the cell phone ticket than it is to hire a lawyer to fight the cell phone ticket. Oh yeah. Considerably so, more. You know, your your likelihood of success with a lawyer versus the cost if you're convicted. You're better off to to roll the dice and hope People you win. People don't do the math, though. They don't do the math. I'll do the math for you. Yeah. $368 fine. 300 bucks a year. A little over that. It's, it's, in the driver risk premium. It's going to be 444 a year for three years in driver risk premium. For the first one? Move. No, the first one is $210 driver point premium. No, so, it's driver risk premium. No, I looked it up the other day. We discussed this. We discussed this on the air. Anyway. The point is, we did the math on the second ticket. More. You get a second, second ticket. One, it's two thousand dollars. Yeah, all together, both tickets together uh, comes to two thousand sixty dollars. Yeah, it's worth it to hire the lawyer because the second ticket is is sixteen hundred bucks plus two cell phone tickets plus your car insurance plus your automatic driving prohibition plus the driving prohibition. So you want to lose your you lose your license. Uh, have to pay more for your car insurance and pay two thousand dollars in collective fines. In summary, the court said the one thing that's gone up. Well, that's interesting. You know, you you think of okay, twenty years ago when I started practicing, there was basically nobody going to traffic court, and any time I ever saw any lawyers going to traffic court, they were always kind of like embarrassed. Ooh, uh, you know, I'm uh, oh, I'm just down here because it's a very good client or something like that. I used to hear that. Yeah, slumming it in traffic court, and um. Uh, you know, I, I, I get it. Um, I was uh, never could understand why people were so enthusiastic about defending guys who broke into cars at Science World and didn't want to defend something in traffic court. And then, um, you know, Kevin Filco and I uh, started doing more and more traffic court 10 years ago. And it seems to have opened it up where, you know, lots of people are are defending their tickets. And, you know, it was you, you and I made some smart decisions by buying all those laser guns and radar guns and getting all those manuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, it's opened it up. It's opened it up in traffic court. And if you look, you know, we never had, for the longest time, we'd only ever had one courtroom open in Richmond for traffic court. There was uh, never more than one courtroom open in uh, in Vancouver for traffic court. Now there's always at least two, sometimes three in Vancouver. There's sometimes two in, four. Some, yeah. So it's it's changed. And, and they've upped the consequences for traffic court. But There's a lot more judicial justices of the peace sitting in traffic court, sure, too. Sure, absolutely. But as they upped up the consequences for traffic court and for traffic tickets, they downed the consequences for money laundering. So apparently money laundering 
you know. You- so is this the choice? <laughs> like, am I supposed to say now, police, please stop investigating driving law and start investigating money laundering? No, but it's just hilarious. Like how hard they come down on, like, think of the cell phone ticket. Yeah, how hard they come they down treated, on people. If they like, treated money what? laundering like they treated cell phone tickets, we wouldn't have a problem. Even Property just, prices would be great. They, they probably know who's doing the money laundering. If they if they don't, they just have to look at some of those videos from the casinos, uh, identify who's doing the money laundering, follow them and give them cell phone tickets. Because I'm sure all of those people are also doing I bet if you gave that. me access to government databases and a month, I could identify all the people doing the money laundering yeah. with very little yeah. difficulty. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not a trained investigator. Yeah. And you'd be violating a bunch of people's charter rights. No, by, you wouldn't. Sure. Just looking like up, looking up business corporation records, registered offices, shareholders and property uh, ownership. Okay. I don't think I would. Yeah. And mortgages, registered mortgages. This is all publicly accessible information. If they gave me access to it without having to pay filing fees, I could just figure it all out. Uh, I think I would want to look at ICBC's records for who's registering what cars. Yep, that's <laughs> also... I had access to that. Well, no, I think that'd be a privacy issue. I think mm-hmm. it'd be a privacy issue there. You just surveil the high-end car deal- dealerships and follow the cars out and run the plates. Yeah, and to go out there and swab the door handles. No, and, you can't uh, swab the door handles. That's how you get 27,000 fentanyl pills excluded from evidence. Um so in uh, we just had a case that was a Vancouver police. It was a serious, serious fentanyl and um, and uh, many other things case, but guns one, and drugs, guns and drugs, lots of guns and drugs. And the VPD were so proud of their arrest that they had signs made um, to uh, go with their display of all of the the things that they. Took off the street. So this the one where they the lined drugs. the guns around the room. Oh yeah, well there's photographs of it still out there in big stacks of money, and it was called what did they call it? Trooper. The yeah, Project Trooper. Project Trooper, and they had special signs made Project Trooper mounted on an easel there. That was your tax money at work. Um, and um, this week, uh, the everything was ruled inadmissible. Uh, all of the evidence that was obtained was ruled inadmissible, and part of it was. Driving law. Yeah, because it was uh, um, things the police did with the cars. So they didn't get warrants to search the cars. But the bigger thing, or the, the more interesting thing, I mean, no warrants to search the car. That's Reduced expectation of privacy, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, but they, um, they went and did uh, swabs off the cars when the cars were just like out there on the street. Mm-hmm. Or in the parking lots or something. Swabbing for drug residue? I guess, yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. Well, they did. And so that was one of the numerous charter violations that led to all of this evidence being excluded. And it's painful. Uh, this was the other story I was in yesterday on Global. With We're recording on Thursday. Um, you will be listening to this the soonest on Friday, and it was on Wednesday, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, the uh, you read the decision, and you can see, I mean, it's pretty easily established for everything else but the swabbing the cars i i had not considered that as a police investigative tool uh and of course it is a search yep it's a search it's a seizure of your residue if there's a privacy interest people don't expect other people to be going around swabbing their property yeah yeah i don't go around swabbing <laughs> you swab the decks yeah 
okay, so that's the last little driving law tidbit from the last week is the major exclusion of evidence in a serious case, all because of people's privacy interests in their vehicles yet again. So, so much is connected to driving law, Kyla Lee. It really is. Is that why you created a podcast called Driving Law with Kyla Lee? What yeah. do you say, Wrigley? Driving law drives the law, um, which is why we're now going to talk about how driving law is driving legal changes in British Columbia with Bowen Ma, uh, the MLA responsible for heading up the uh, committee at the legislature that studied ride hailing services in British Columbia and responsible for producing a lengthy, very interesting report into how ride hailing can become feasible in BC. So welcome Bowen Ma to the podcast. Thank you again, Bowen Ma, for joining me on the podcast to talk about the work that you did on the uh, ride sharing or ride hailing report. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about how you came to be in sort of coordinating this and, and heading this up? Sure. Thanks so much for having me first off, Kyla. Um, so the Select Standing Committee on Crown Corporations is one of many all-party legislative committees. Um, and each legislative committee is, again, it, it consists of all parties. So you've got BC Liberal MLAs, New Democrat MLAs, and a Green MLA on each of these committees. And I was uh, selected by our government to be the chair of this committee. Um, now, that was actually decided before they received a mandate to look into ride-sharing. So the ride-sharing question came to the committee after it was formed. Okay, and you listened to, in arriving at sort of all the conclusions you came to in your report, which we'll talk about, you listened to a number of witnesses. Who did you invite and, and how did you go about choosing who should should come and give you testimony? Uh, so, so we actually invited hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. Uh, some of them were invited to present in person, um, and me- most of them were invited to provide written submissions. So uh, it, I should note that the Select Standing Committee on Crown Corporations has actually been invited to investigate the topic of transportation network services, or colloquially known as ride-sharing, two times now. So we did a report in 2018, and then we did another report uh, just earlier this year in 2019. And so uh, the process for selecting witnesses was something that we had developed in the first round uh, of this committee. And what we uh, what happens is each member of the committee brings forward recommendations for witnesses ahead of time, and then we gather it all into a list. And during a committee meeting, we all get votes. So we're able to select, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, might have been like 35 or 40 witnesses. And we basically brought in those witnesses that had the most votes. Um, in addition to that, uh, this year, we also invited every single witness that had submitted a, um, provided a written submission or a, a provided a in-person presentation in 2018. And we invited every single disability advocacy uh, organization uh, to provide a written submission, as well as all ride-hailing companies. So that includes taxis as well as transportation network services, so app-based ride-hailing, and all municipalities and all First Nations. So they were all invited to provide written submissions. Wow. Okay. (laughs) But no lawyers. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean... 
I, I don't think so, actually. <laughs> That's okay. My invitation was lost in the mail. I get it. <laughs> um, no, so tell us a little bit about some of the recommendations you guys ultimately made at the end of your investigation into this issue. Yeah, so the, I mean, the report is very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And while the recommendations, which I'll talk about in a bit, uh, are really important, it's also important to know that not all of the concerns that were raised by the committee in the report resulted in recommendations. I mean, this is part of the nature of an all-party committee. We all approached the conversations from very different perspectives. Uh, We presented very different concerns, and we also had a very short time frame. So we weren't able to solve all of the questions that were brought up, but we were able to agree on a number of recommendations. So one of those key recommendations is that um, transportation network services not be brought into the province using the traditional form of operating pickup boundaries that that taxi cabs use. Mm -hmm. Now, there are still concerns that committee members have around, uh, for instance, the equitable distribution of services. So um, in San Francisco, as an example, what they found was most transportation network services end up in the downtown core where congestion is already very high. And a lot less of it ends up in the suburbs or less urban areas where um, where the service is actually required the most. So that's what I refer to in ter- when I talk about equitable distribution of services from a geographical perspective. There's also concerns about congestion, um, and it's very clear now. The evidence is very clear about the impact of transportation network services on increased congestion. We saw it in San Francisco. We saw it in New York. It is substantial. So there are challenges that need to be addressed, but we all agreed that the use of um, standard pickup operational boundaries, the way that taxi uh, services currently have um, use them, you know, as in you can pick up in Vancouver, but you can't pick up in Burnaby and so forth. Yeah. We did agree that that's probably not the best way to manage transportation network services, that there are, uh, given that it is very high-tech, high um, uh, I guess high-tech service, that there may actually be more dynamic methods of managing that. Right. Um, and another uh, example of the recommendations uh, was that we not uh, cap the size of the vehicle fleets that these companies have access to. So that's not necessarily the number of vehicles on the roads at any given time, but the number of vehicles that these companies might actually be able to have in their system at any time that uh, we did agree that we probably shouldn't cap that either. Well, I think that's really important. You know, I know as a millennial, uh, a lot of people my age enjoy the gig economy and like being able to sort of set their own hours and do things like you know, drive for Uber and deliver for skip the dishes and, you know, do Postmates or whatever, um, you know, whatever thing arises that they want to do and, and earn their income that way. And I think if you're putting caps on, on the number of vehicles in a fleet, you're essentially closing people out of setting their own hours and living that gig economy lifestyle. Yeah. And the service is meant to be very dynamic, right? As in like, it's, uh, it's meant to be able to provide supply when demand is uh, when the demand is there. And so we recognize the need for some of these companies to have a bit of flexibility in that regard. Right. Um, as far as the class four license uh, recommendation that um, Minister of Transportation uh, Claire Trevana was commenting about, what, what do you have to say about that? So 
the decision or the recommendation around whether transportation network service providers should require their drivers to have class four or class five licenses was definitely one of those. Uh, actually, it was the only recommendation in the report that wasn't consensus driven. So there were different opinions on it. Um, most of those conversations are, uh, and the votes happen in camera, so I won't right. be able to talk about uh, how other MLAs feel, but for me, I certainly do have uh, concerns about abandoning the Class 4 license altogether. And do you want to share some of those concerns? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the difference between a Class 4 and a Class 5 license is effectively, so this is uh, this is what a Class 4 license is. Um, you have to have a Class 5 driver's license. You have to be at least 19 years of age. You have to have a cleanish driving record. Um, and then you also have to have uh, completed an additional knowledge test, road test, uh, and vehicle safety pre-trip test. So you have to be able to kind of check the safety of your vehicle. Um, and so that is, uh, in my view, not necessarily a unreasonable expectation to have of drivers who are being paid to drive members of the public around. And a Class 4 license is currently required to operate um, in, uh, pardon me, to operate as a TNS driver, Transportation Network Service driver in Nova Scotia, Alberta, and Quebec. Um, now, it's important to note that the other provinces, uh, so Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, currently currently require what's effectively the equivalent of a Class 5 license. But in Ontario, uh, the City of Toronto is actually getting overwhelming pressure from the public to now increase those standards as a result of some of the uh, safety challenges that they've had. Okay. Do you think that there will be a time um, in the future when government will consider for people who are facing financial barriers to entering the ride-hailing industry, um, waiving the licensing requirements um, as insofar as fees and examinations? I think that there's always opportunity to discuss how we, uh, how we manage um, and regulate different industries. And certainly one of the recommendations in the Select Standing Committee on Crown Corporation's report on ride-sharing was that uh, in about, I think the date was maybe year 2021 or 2022, uh, that government take another look at how we're regulating the, the industry overall. Um, now, having said that, though, I think that there there does need to be a bit more dialogue about the gig economy because while flexibility is very important to millennials, I mean, I'm a millennial myself. I understand having um, having the desire to have flexibility around your work environment. There, there are challenges in terms of how the gig economy pays employees, and certainly drivers are going to have to figure out for themselves if driving for a company like Uber is going to be financially beneficial for them because many reports and studies, including one by MIT that came out uh, just last year, have pegged Uber driver wages at about minimum wage after you take into account depreciation of your vehicle, insurance costs, the fee they pay to, to the app, gas, corporate, uh, and the corporate income taxes they'll have to pay on their own as a private, um, as a private contractor. So, the, and it's also important to note that that's on average. So some are making more and some are definitely making less than that. So there are some choices that 
um, that drivers will have to make in terms of what kind of work they want to get into. But as well, it's also worth noting that there may other may be other ride-sharing companies that come through with much better, uh, more uh, consumer and driver-friendly business models. So it will be an exciting time for people looking to drive for a, a transportation network company app, I think, and uh, hopefully there'll be lots of choices. Wonderful. Thank you for taking time. I know you have a meeting to run off to, so I'll, I'll let you get to that. And uh, thank you again for joining me on the podcast to talk about the work you did on this uh, committee and um, your production of this uh, really comprehensive report. Thank you so much, Carla. Take care. Thank you again for tuning into another episode of Driving Law, and thank you to Bowen Ma for taking time out of your very busy day to talk to us about the work that you did on the ride-hailing report. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. We've got some really interesting guests coming over the next several weeks, and we're going to have a lot of interesting discussion about how, as Paul indicated, driving law really does relate to so many different areas of law. 